today. Um, in our episode, the first kind of two episodes that we have is a story about Jesus walking with his disciples. It's on the Sabbath, the holy day, and um, they walk by, they're hungry, they take a, a handful of grain, they probably crunch it in their hands, they probably blow away the chaff, and then eat the grains. And then an episode where Jesus is in their synagogues, the Pharisees' synagogues, and uh, there is brought to him a man with a withered hand, a crippled hand, and they ask Jesus whether or not he can be healed on this holy day, the Sabbath day, to see how Jesus will respond. The connecting story or the connecting fact in these two stories is what? The, the Sabbath. The Sabbath. See, the Pharisees and the teachers, uh, they were de the defenders of God's law. Um, much like a pastor uh, is the under-shepherd under Jesus, he's the chief shepherd, I'm a under-shepherd. There's a country pastor I know up in Bardstown, he goes, well, buddy, I'm just a watchdog, I'm a sheepdog, that's what I do. Um, but it is our responsibility to care for the sheep and to shoot wolves. So that's why when I'm in, often in conversation, um, and I hear people speaking um, in unbiblical ways or that they are following false teachers that are in the world, I'm very quick um, and aggressively to speak against those things. It's part of my responsibility. It's part of Pastor Justin's responsibility. And, and likewise, the Pharisees, they get a bad rap. Well-deserved, Okay. But one of the things, some of their intentions at the beginnings of these issues, though, were good. They were to protect what they believed to be God's law, all right? They believed wholeheartedly that they were doing absolutely nothing wrong. If anything, that they were honoring God, that they were policing God's law. But as we have seen over and over and over again, they are taking this to extremes. God's law meant this, and they fleshed it out literally in their flesh to way, way extremes, which placed, as we talked about last week, a heavy yoke upon the people of God, that following God, following Yahweh was an extremely heavy load upon them. And Jesus comes and says, you know, I am the rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest. See, the Pharisees, as the defenders of God's law in the Old Testament, 613 laws that they expounded upon volumes, upon volumes, upon volumes to explain what God meant by his law, um, were, were wanting the law of God to affect every aspect of your life. They were all about application, 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 application. Now, I believe in preaching application is a good thing. However, it is not God. See, the ultimate end of preaching is to worship God, is to get people who are lost and far from God to God, that God would use the proclamation, the preaching of the word, the sharing of the gospel to, to bring those who are far from him to himself. But they took application um, of following God's law to the extreme because they believed wrongly that application and living out this, this life, this work, would ultimately get them favor with God. See, to get grace, 
You must first work. As New Testament Christians, believers in Jesus, what do we believe? No, we get grace, therefore we get to work. There's a major difference there on where the, the, the nucleus or the nuclei of where we begin that experience and understanding where the Pharisees are coming to. Their intentions were good in their eyes. If we work harder, if our people work harder, we will get the favor of God. We quickly learn through Jesus that that never works. It never ends up getting grace. It only becomes burden because we can never be good enough to fulfill God's laws perfectly and that is what he demands. So this idea of the Sabbath. In Genesis, we see that God, the Trinity, creates the earth. On the seventh day, he rests. He takes a Sabbath. He takes a break. Not because God needs a break. Not because God gets tired, but in essence to create a rhythm for humanity, that Sabbath was created for man, an opportunity for them to do on the seventh day things that they did not do on the previous days. This is in the Big Ten. We see this in Exodus chapter 20 when God tells Moses to tell the people, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For uh, six days with the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all of all, excuse me, and all that is in them, and re rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there's this key phrase there, on the Sabbath day, on the, the seventh day of the week, you are not to work. But not only are you not to work, but your kids aren't supposed to work. And every kid in here is like, amen, praise Jesus, hallelujah. But if you own machinery, if you own cattle, if you have slaves, if you, all of these things that typically work for you the six days of the week on the seventh day should not work. This is the whole Chick-fil-A Mentality. If you have ever read Kathy Truett, he's the owner and creator of Chick-fil-A, um, he not only says that they don't work on, Saturday, on Sunday because they want to uh, uh, give the opportunity for their, their, their employees to go worship, but they also, see, they also say, or he says in his biography, that the machines need to rest as well. It does not hurt their pocketbooks at all, not being open on Sunday. Okay, if anything, the, long, the line is longer Monday morning because they're taking the break, all right? So we, we see this, this practice. Now, what is work? That became the question. What does it mean to work? And so the Pharisees took it upon themselves to expound what it meant to work. They wanted there to be no question at all as people were asking, well, if I'm typically a milk dairy farmer during the week, can I milk the cows on the Sabbath? What does that mean? Can I take out the trash even though it's not um, working in the factory this week, but I'm working at my house? Can I mow my own yard if that's what I do? As long as I'm not being a teacher 
on the Sabbath? What, what does this really mean? These are great questions that people are wanting to ask. And yet the Pharisees wrote volumes on defining what it meant to work. Like many laws, uh, people began to have different interpretation of what, what God meant by this. And so the Pharisees really wanted to try to clarify. Listen to some of these crazy laws. People lived just like this for thousands of years. One of the major questions was, was how far can I travel? Well, according to the Pharisees and the rabbinical law, a, a person could travel about 3,000 feet from their house. That is it. If you took one more step over 3,000 feet, you were breaking the law, which is punishable by death. So what they allowed was, was you could take a rope tied to the corner of your house, go 3,000 feet with a rope hooked to you, and that was still considered to be your house. So you would get 3,000 more feet from the end of that rope. All right? What they would also do is attach rope from house to house, making a chain link house. It was all considered to be a dwelling. So as far as you could go, as long as those houses were connected with these ropes, then at the end of the house, you would get 3,000 feet from the last house if you lived on a street. Okay, that means just crazy things. Um, also, what you could do is, is on the day before the Sabbath, you could go as far as you wanted to go, and you could put food there. So if it was the county over, the city over, if you went the day before the Sabbath, plotted food there, then that was considered your house because that's where your food was. So you could travel back to your real house and on the Sabbath travel thousands of miles, or you couldn't get there in a day, especially during this time, but you could travel a long, long distance as long as you went to where that food was because where that food was was considered your house. And then from that place, you would have 3,000 more feet that you could travel. Um, the question is, carrying a load, is that work? How heavy is a load? So let's say like today, this morning, maybe you needed a jacket. If you were wearing the jacket, that was not considered to be packing a load. But if you carried the jacket over your arm, that was carrying a load and is punishable by death. You've just worked on the Sabbath. Um, what about um, spit? If you spit on the Sabbath and it lands in the dust of the earth and creates a divot in the dust, you have just plowed death. If you spit and it falls upon a rock, you're good because it didn't create a divot in the rock. Um, John MacArthur writes this in his commentary. He says, Taylors, uh, didn't, these are all true things from the, the Talmud and the Mishnah. Those are writings about, about the law, um, explaining the law. Uh, Taylors uh, did not carry a needle on the Sabbath for fear they may be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be brought or sold, nothing could be bought or sold, and nothing could not, excuse me, in clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched, um, even if it was by the hand of a Gentile. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp. Baths could not be taken for fear that some of the water might spill onto the floor and wash it. 
Chairs could not be moved because dragging them may cause, may cause a furrow, plow, the ground. And women could not look in the mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. Those are all Jewish laws, and I could give you law after law after law after law of what you could not do on the Sabbath or be punished by death. All right? So imagine this morning, if we were law-abiding Sabbath followers, this morning you've done several things. One, Sunday, according to the Jews, is not the Sabbath. So, broke it, you're dead. All right? They worship from Friday night to Saturday evening was considered to be the Sabbath. Two, how many of you drove a car this morning? Anybody drive a car? As soon as you turn that car over, there's something called a spark plug inside of your vehicle that causes a small little tiny bit of fire, which ignites the fuel, which causes your vehicle to go, and you have just created and started a fire. You couldn't cook your food. Everything had to be prepared um, before hand. You couldn't gather this morning because this is probably 3,000 feet way further from your house than you're supposed to travel. See, God gave the people a blessing. He gave them a day. He, he said, here's the deal. Work hard at your job, at your career on these days, but on this day, I want you to set it apart. What you do on this day should be completely different than what you do on the six previous days. We're to give you rest. This is a gift to you, but it is also a gift to other people. See, the, the Pharisees took this to this extreme. I love it when Jesus says here, um, Jesus was sarcastic. And, and, and I like that because I have a tendency to be sarcastic. And, and Jesus, look, look at what he says here in our passage. After they're looking, look, your disciples, what are they doing? Uh, it is not lawful for them to do. Why? Because they have just pulled and they have just taken the chaff off of the grain and they've eaten it. They have labored. They have worked in the garden on that day. And, and they're coming to Jesus and they're like, is this lawful? It's not about them stealing the food because that was actually lawful for them to do. Um, they were sojourners. They were travelers. Um, if you owned a field of grain, you were to leave the edges for the poor, for the oppressed, for the traveling to eat. You did not harvest that. And look at what Jesus says here sarcastically. He says to them, have you not read? Who's Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. They've read it. They've got it memorized. So Jesus looks at the church folk. He looks at the people who know the word. They're writing commentaries and volumes and volumes and volumes on these issues. And Jesus looks at them sarcastically in their grills. Hey, hey, have you read? See, it's a, it's a truth issue. And so Jesus takes them back to their Jewish history, takes them back to the story of David. David and Saul. Saul is the king. He's gone nuts. This king has gone crazy. 
God establishes this ruddy, red-headed um, son named David to, to take over and to be the anointed king of Israel. Saul becomes extremely jealous of David because David has been giving this anointed by God and he also has a great relationship with the followers or his, his, his people in his kingdom. And so Saul sets out to kill David. David is, is running from Saul. He doesn't want to have anything to do with killing Saul. And yet Saul and his men become very hungry. They're starving. And they show up to the, to the, to the temple on the Sabbath. What are they to do? Well, inside of the temple, there are the priests there, and there's what's called the bread of presence. The bread of presence was a loaf of bread that was created by the tithing of the Jewish people. They, you brought your money, you brought your first fruits, you brought your grains, you brought those things to the church. You know who ate those? The priest. They, that was their food. That was their payment. They also dispersed it as they saw fit, but that bread alone was for those priests. And yet, what do we see in the Old Testament on the Sabbath? Because these men are starving, they are allowed to eat the food. So Jesus takes them to the word and he reminds them of that. Also, he reminds them of this, is that the priest on the Sabbath, you know what they do? They work. They work their jobs. Sunday for a lot of you is your off day, Right? For me, it's not. I don't have an off day on Sunday. It's a work day for me. Now, I know that some of you believe that this is the only day I work during the week, is the common church belief, all right? However, that's not the case, okay? This is a, it's a off day for you. It can be your Sabbath, but Sunday cannot be my Sabbath because I work, all right, as the priest, work. And so Jesus reminds them of that. He's like, should David and his men be killed? You got to understand David is the Michael Jordan of Judaism. He's their all-star. Like he is the man. Kids were running around not wanting to be like Mike as, as small Jewish children. No, they're, they're wanting to be like David. They're getting stones from the brook and they're twirling around their head and they take the big bully kid and they're hitting them in the head and they're playing pretend. They want to be David. David is the man. He is from his loins that the king, the Messiah, will one day come. They're longing to be this man. So Jesus makes it a point, and he says something about that. He goes into their, notice what Jesus does, is he goes right to where they dwell. He goes right into their synagogues. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to catch Jesus again. They, they bring this man to Jesus, and it's on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to heal anyone on the Sabbath unless they're about to die. Then you can help them. That's Pharisaical law. They believed that even if, if, if you were to help a person, you could wrap it, but you couldn't put any medicine on the wrap or on the bandage if it was on the Sabbath. You were not to help people whatsoever on the Sabbath if it benefited them in any way according to these Pharisees. Jesus shows up. They're trying to catch Jesus. They bring Jesus a man. He has a withered hand. Is this withered hand life or death? No. See what they're trying to do? 
Jesus is about to do something, and Jesus, he tells him, he uses that example, right? If you had a sheep, if you had a goat, and it fell into a hole on the Sabbath, would you not go down and get that animal? Of course you would. Why? Because that's how you get money. That's how you eat. That's how you take care of your family. So, of course, you would go do that. And what does Jesus say? Well, how much more valuable is it that this man is healed than that sheep, than that goat, than that animal? Of course, if you would save that animal, you think that an animal is more valuable than a person. So you'd be willing to do that on the Sabbath and receive grace and mercy for you saving that animal, but you're unwilling to help a person, a starving person. A person in need. And what does Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament. He's like, do you not understand this, that we desire mercy? God desires mercy toward other individuals way more than he desires a sacrificial life. Notice, what does Jesus do? Calls the man to come over. And the Bible tells us that his hand begins to open up. What does it say in verse 14? What's their response? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a major turning point in the trajectory of Jesus. Let me give you the skinny here. Jesus shows up on the scene. He shows up from city to city. He begins to pre preach, uh, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is here. I am here. Repent, repent, repent. He, to, to reflect that he is the Messiah, he heals people. He heals people. He heals people. Then there is a response. A lot of times that's a physical response, um, rejection of some sorts. But by the time that we get to chapter 12, those men that have been following Jesus throughout Capernaum and seeing this and have rejection, that rejection has grown to bitterness and angry and now has risen in anger and hatred toward Jesus to the point they are ready to kill him. From here on out, we're heading toward the cross. We're heading toward Calvary. And what is the boiling point for these men? That Jesus is breaking the Sabbath law. See, brothers and sisters, again, the, the Sabbath was meant to be a, a blessing to us. The, the Sabbath was, was meant for, for joy. It was meant for celebration. On that day, God has even given you, he's saying, on the Sabbath, you've worked all of this time. You've said you've been busy. Isn't that what we say a lot? Man, how you doing? I, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm busy. How you, how's your family? Well, man, we're just in the season of busyness. We're running around. The kids are going here. The kids are going there. The kids are going here. The kids are going here. And, and God established this day, a break from all of that busyness to say, here's the deal. In all the excuses of why you can't spend time with me, about why you can't be in my word, about how you can't serve people because you're so busy during the week, I'm giving you a day. I'm giving, you get six. All I'm asking, I'm asking for one day where you stop the busyness, you Come together, you celebrate the Lord, you worship God, you spend time with him, you spend time with his people. You can't serve during the week, you serve on the Sabbath. 
You show mercy on the Sabbath. So you, you are without excuse. You should have extended time with brothers and sisters in Christ, extended time in the word of God. I'm, 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 I want you to set apart a day that will richly bless you because you're so busy throughout the week and you can't serve me through the week. You can't serve other people during the week. So take a day and commit it to service. But let's all face it. We've, we have committed it to potluck dinners, getting fat, watching television, sitting in the recliner, doing absolutely nothing. And that's not what it means either. We're without excuse. We're without excuse. Because he's given us a day. He's given us a day. Don't do on this day what you do. See, I would love to gather like this every day. Some of y'all are like, oh, no, I can handle that. I ain't doing that. It's hard enough for me to get here one day a week. I would love to do this every day. Imagine every morning starting out your day like this. To me, that's joy-filled. But again, you, you say, I've got to take care of my family. We've got to work. We've got a, a job. We've got these responsibilities. Kids have to be in school, all these sorts of things. So what we do on today is different. But a lot of times, what do we think Sabbath is? Sabbath is me recuperating through doing absolutely nothing. But see, it was a joy. It was supposed to be meant as a joy. But for these early Jews, guess what they hated? The Sabbath. They hated the Sabbath. They had to work harder not to work on the Sabbath than any other day during the week. I mean, pretty much what their Sabbath consisted of is find a chair, don't move, all day long. You're eating leftovers, room temp, okay? So whatever happened, set it out in front of you. You know, don't leave the house. It's supposed to be, again, a day of celebration, a day of rest, of finding rest as you serve other people, as you show mercy to other people, as you spend time with the brothers and sisters. All these sorts of things are supposed to be happening, but because of all the different layers upon layers upon layers of rules and regulations, I mean, simply it became a day they absolutely dreaded. It was not a day of rest. <laughs> it was the most working day in the year. I mean, can you imagine? And we've just covered a few of the laws of how debilitating that must have been. The Jews, they hated this day. They hated it. See, God gave it to them not only for them, but they were to take this day and to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Instead of it being a blessing, these, this day, this Sabbath became a curse. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't break the Sabbath. He breaks their laws. And he reminds them of the word of God as he's broken them. That it couldn't nearly mean what they have made it to believe that it means now. Because David breaks it. The priest, 
the guys that you're supposed to aspire to, to be like, the, the, the men who are preaching um, at us that Yahweh, the Lord is one, who are taking care of us, who are shepherding us, we're to aspire, they're breaking it when they work on that Sabbath. And if this is what you mean by this. And so Jesus is saying something utterly not about the Sabbath, but is saying something utterly about himself. Jesus, when he brings up David, it calls great confusion because essentially Jesus is saying, guess what, I'm, I'm a true and better David. When he brings up the priest, what is he saying? He's saying, man, I'm a true and better priest. Later, he's going to tell us about the temple. He's like, I'm, I'm, I want you to know that I'm the true and better temple. I am the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath. What the Sabbath was meant to accomplish, you find only in me. See, the Pharisees and the Jews had become like Saul. They did not have the anointing of God upon them. And, and these Pharisaical leaders also did not have the joy of the people. All of that was now resting upon Jesus. And Jesus is saying, man, I am the true and better David. I am the true and better priest. I am the true and better temple. I am the true and better Sabbath. And they wanted to kill Jesus for it. Notice here in the passage in verse um, 15. So after this happens, they want to destroy Jesus. Jesus knows it's not time for him to go to the cross. We see this a lot of times with Jesus. And so what does he do in verse 15? Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there. It's not time for me to be killed. They're ready to kill him that day. This is like a year into Jesus's ministry. Okay, we think the death threats came at, you know, two and a half almost three years into this, a year into it, by chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew, they are ready to kill Jesus. And he sneaks in away. He withdraws from there. He's not there to cause commotion. It's not the time. And it tells us what, and many followed him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Okay, it's, it's I'm going to do something here, but it's, it's not time for me to die yet. So be careful. And then Matthew, as he constantly does, using the Old Testament to justify and to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, uses the Old Testament scripture, which are foretelling of Jesus and how Jesus fulfills those things. And what does he tell us in verse 18? Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. God, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Messiah, what does he call him? Behold, once he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the Gospel of John tells us here, we get another behold. You know, I've talked about this before, but man, I think that's a word we should bring back somehow. You know, behold, honey, I am home. Behold, children. Father is here, all right? I mean, it just demands something. And a lot of times we just, oh, behold, you know, 
my servant whom I've chosen. No, behold, God is declaring something. When he says this, the the literal um, cosmos is shaking as God speaks and says of all others, better than Noah, better than Abraham, better than David, better than Solomon, better than Moses, better than Samson, better than Elijah. Behold, my ultimate servant, my ultimate prophet, my ultimate priest, my ultimate king, my ultimate servant is Jesus. Behold him. Look to him. He is what you've been looking for. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is the servant king. But he is not a waiter. There's a big difference. Jesus is the servant king, and yet especially as American, and as American Christians who are, are so consumed with consumerism, we like to have an idea of Jesus being more of a vending machine than we do him being the servant king. No, Jesus is, is not a waiter. Jesus is not the kind of king that is sitting on the throne at this point and is, is the peasants, and we've all seen the, you know, displayed in cinema, in books, and television. You know, you've got the king on the throne. He's surrounded by all this, you know, just circus around him, and in comes the poor people, and, and you know, he's like, be gone, peasant. I want to have nothing to do. And then we'll, we'll see it within, uh, you know, cinema and books and reading and television. We'll, we'll see the, the king or the, the priest, or excuse me, the prince that um, he wants to be with the people. And so it's been portrayed over and over and over again. And the story will unfold about how that there is, um, you know, some sort of, of, of a superhero in the village and in the town who is taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And by the end of the movie, it's revealed that it was the king. That is more how Jesus came to serve during this time. Jesus did not come to just, at that time, to sit upon a throne and have nothing to do with the peasants it had nothing to do with the poor. No, no, Jesus, what does he come? He comes as a poor, homeless man. He, he has no place to lay his head. He is found constantly amongst the, the, the prostitutes and the drunks and the gluttons and the, and the tax collectors. He's, he's found amongst the poor and the oppressed. He is not found with the wealthy. He is not rubbing shoulders with, with Roman governors and kings. No, he is, he is found amongst the lowly. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that we are speaking about here. He goes on here to tell us in this passage, man, I hope that you found comfort and joy and rest inside of this statement here today. Look at verse 20. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now Jesus looks at those peasants and he says, are, are you bruised? Has life bruised you? Be a good comfort. Jesus is here. You know, as a little kid, I was I had to entertain myself a lot. And um, I would take a magnifying glass and I'd go back outside. And I used to love to wood burn with a magnifying glass. Any boy do that, man, in here? So you get a piece of wood that your daddy doesn't know you have. You get a magnifying glass. You grab it on the back porch. You're, you're, and you're, you're lining this up. And 
it always happened as I was wood burning with my magnifying glass that a group of ants would gather on the pavement. And I would quickly move from being a craftsman to playing God. <laughs> Punish you, <laughs> you know. Punish And the, as creative as my mind was, I could create an entire world for those ants. You terrible ants, I'm God, Eric. And I'm just crushing these ants, right? Didn't care about the wood anymore. It was just about killing innocent ants. You know, sometimes that's how we view God. Brothers and sisters, some of you are bruised and broken by sin in your life. You're, you're wayward. You're bruised and broken by suffering. You're bruised and broken by sickness. You're bruised and broken by uh, fear in your marriage, fear over your children. You are, you are hurting this morning. And much like a, a small popsicle stick that you, it has flexibility, right? And you can, there's, there's bend in it, there's bow in it. And you're at the tipping point of, of being snapped. And I want you to know, the servant king is, is not like God, Eric, killing those innocent ants burning them alive. Jesus this morning is not waiting to pounce on your brokenness, as wretched as it may be. Jesus does not bruise the reed even more and break it. Jesus heals you. If you are broken, and I don't know what you did last night. I don't know what you're thinking about this morning. I don't know the secret lives that you may live. I don't know your hurt and your brokenness, but I believe this because I believe the word of God that he is not here to snap you in your hurt. But Jesus has come. Some of you, you're believers. And man, when you first became a Christian, you were annoying. And you were annoying to all other Christians. Because you lived it. You were a combustible flame. You were a living torch for the gospel. You, you meet people and you start hearing their stories. And even you know, white-haired people or people who are follically challenged my, like myself who have some wisdom in their beards. And unless they're ladies, then hopefully... You don't, okay? But you, you have wisdom. You have, you have access. You've been following God. We should be aspiring to be more like you. And you talk to these people, and, and then you hear them. When they were young, they were passionate for Jesus. They were passionate for mission. They were passionate about sharing the gospel. They would walk into their old bars that they would go to. They would talk to their old friends, and they couldn't help but share the gospel. They were a, a human torch for the gospel, burning brightly in the darkness. They were being reflectors of, of God, and yet... When they sit in front of you, they are a mere flicker, some of them, to what they once were. Some of you, young or old, I could come to you and you could tell me about a time where you were really on fire for Jesus, right? I did, I did youth mystery for a long time. 
You need to get fired up for Jesus. Are you on fire for Jesus? Every youth camp there in the mid-90s was, you know, spark, on fire for Jesus. You know? Consuming fire, youth camp for Jesus. And if we were to sit down, you could tell me about it. And if you were confessional, you'd say, yeah, Pastor Eric, there was this one time I remember when I was on fire for the Lord. And what does he say? A smoldering wick he will not quench. And some of us through maybe disobedience, waywardness, unconfessed sin, that human torch has become the smallest of flames. And I want you to know what does he tell us here? Smoldering wicky will not quench. God is not playing the ultimate game of survivor in hopes that you could keep your flame alit. He's not standing there with that snuffer and at any moment is waiting to put out your flame. No, the servant Jesus has come to give life. He's come to give life. What does he tell us here? He says, until he brings justice to victory and his name the Gentiles will hope. Immediately this servant came as, has come to, to serve. He has come to live in the Spirit. He has come to heal the bruised reed. He has come to ignite and to pour oxygen and gasoline on the, the smoldering small flame that is inside of you. The Holy Spirit is sweeping once again through the person and work of Jesus to fall new and to afresh and that where you're not just speaking of some long ago past life with Jesus but know that you are as on fire where you, or you are a kid or whether you're the oldest person in the room that Jesus has come to ignite the fire of the gospel within you. Why? So that the nations, the Gentiles will one day hope in the king, in the servant king. This is the mission of Jesus. A great Puritan, Richard Sibbs, once said, Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. Bruised, battered, flame flickering, come to Jesus. Why did Jesus eat on the Sabbath? Why did he heal on the Sabbath? Because Jesus' pursuit was to obey God, even if it meant breaking human laws. Brothers and sisters, if you're being controlled by the laws of this earth more than the law of God and Christ's desire, you are missing the gospel. Romans 13 tells us that we are to obey authorities, but we obey authorities until it is, it is the antithesis, the opposite of what God calls us to do in obedience. We are compassionate even if it breaks the law. Let's imagine just for a moment that you own a farm and you have a beautiful pristine lake at the farm and you have signs all around that lake that says, do not swim, no trespassing, do not swim. And yet the local teenagers like to take off their clothes at night and get into that water. And one night you hear ruckus teenagers out in that lake on your farm that you have well posted 
no trespassing, no swimming. And you walk by and you run out there and you, you see a group of teenagers and they're drowning. What do you do? You go swimming. You go swimming. Are they lawbreakers? Yes. Have you put out the roadmaps? Do not swim. No trespassing. And yet in that moment, what do you do? You show compassion. You break the law in order to save and to show mercy to those physical people because you are the ultimate fulfillment of that law because it's your lake. You can swim there. It's yours. They're the lawbreakers. And so Jesus breaks human law in order to establish his own. And he comes to an earth that he has planted many a picture saying, don't go this way, don't go this way, don't go this way, don't go this way. No trespassing, you will die, you will drown in your sin. And yet what does Jesus do? He comes, he lives, and he dies. It's at this moment where I'm extremely tempted right now to talk about the Sabbath and how we should be living our Sabbath and how Sunday should be Sunday fun day at your house and we should serve. That's my temptation this morning. It's my temptation for me to talk about how we need to have better mercy ministries here at Mission, to talk about the application of that. It's, it's my temptation this morning to talk about the importance of serving as Jesus has served. We've learned in our MCs over the last several weeks, Jesus came as servant, therefore our identity in him is what? That of servant. And to give you, you know, ways to serve your spouse this morning and ways to serve your kids this morning and ways to serve the church this morning, ways to serve the city this morning, but I do not think that that is the important part part of this passage. What is important about this passage, and this is extremely simple, yet we have missed it, is not more application, more ways, and all those things can be really helpful and really good. There is a time for that. But ultimately what Matthew is getting here, and ultimately what we miss in most of the scripture, is who is Jesus? Because if we know who Jesus is, then guess what? We're going to take the Sabbath seriously. If we know who Jesus is, we're going to take mercy ministries seriously. If, if, we're, if we know who Jesus is, guess what? Wives, you will have the best husbands in this room. I want that for you. If you take Jesus seriously, if we know who Jesus is seriously, then guess what? Husbands, you're going to have the best wife in the world. She understands I'm not serving him, I'm serving Jesus. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. If we know who Jesus is, then our church will never have a want for help. Because you'll understand, Jesus, our city will never have a want because the church will faithfully serve it. Jesus, the servant king, let me read this to you in closing. Flip over with me to Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to go ahead and preach this text. Matthew chapter 20. Listen to what happens quickly. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. This is Jesus. This is James and John. Brother Zebedee, 
What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, we see in just a few short time period, the disciples, they've been following Jesus. James and John, they've been following Jesus. All of a sudden, Mama steps into the principal's office to tell them how good their babies are. They've been faithfully serving Man, hey, hey, Jesus, my boys, you know, you, you, you took them, you called them, they followed after you. We're really excited about that. We long for that their entire lives for them to be following a rabbi. We appreciate that. They've been serving you faithfully. But hey, when you go to your kingdom, can you make sure since our boys are really good servants that they are on your right and on your left? It sounds like a good mommy, right? And what does Jesus say? You know, you're, you're wanting this because in some way you're viewing this as having power. But what? It shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, sometimes we'll read that passage and be like, all right, we got to outserve each other. And I understand that there's some, there's some truth into that, that we should be anxious in, in how well that we serve each other. But brothers and sisters, you and I are not in that passage. You know who's the servant among you? Jesus you know, who, 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 is, who has come is, is Jesus. He is the servant. The first among you must be your slave. What do you do when you're the king and you step into the room? What does Jesus do? He serves. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The disciples are jockeying for position. They're jockeying for power. And yet Jesus steps onto the scene and he's like, here's the deal, guys. You can't do what only I can do. I'm God. I'm the creator of all things. I am the king. And how do I rule? They're being stripped naked, beaten beyond recognition. I hate to have one hair plucked off of my body. And Jesus has his, his beard ripped from his face. He's, he's bitten, beaten with whips. He drinks the full cup of divine wrath. The king serves. Why? 
as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, when we say that Jesus is the king's servant, I want you to know, though, that that servanthood is not towards you and I primarily. It is toward God. At all costs, I will be obedient to God. And because I'm being obedient to God, humanity, my church, my bride, my people will reap the benefits of me being completely laser pinpointed focus on the person and work of God. That's why Jesus, when when Jesus is on the cross, you are not on his mind. I don't care what that terrible song tells you. God is on his mind. God is. That is the primary focus. God, how can I serve you if that means that I literally need to be filleted before humanity, that my flesh is ripped off of my body? Then so be it. I will serve in this capacity. I will do not my will, but your will be done. What, what is the benefit? You and I find Sabbath rest. You and I have a better priest. You and I have our bellies and our souls filled in the person and work of God. You and I get to serve in mercy ministries, realizing ultimately that ultimate mercy comes from Jesus. So may we this morning, may we see Jesus. May we know the gospel. If you're lost and do not have a relationship with Jesus this morning, or if you're a nominal Christian, that means you're a Christian by name only. You're from the South, you're a Christian. I want you to know that is no Christianity at all. That is not biblical Christianity. That is not following Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that a non-Christian can turn from a sinful activity. Did you know that? A non-Christian can stop drinking. A non-Christian can stop beating his wife. A non-Christian can stop being a thief. They can turn from that sin. And that's where we often leave repentance. Turn from a sin. But like many of us, we can turn from that sin and typically we'll pick up something else. So my brothers who I work with who drug, uh, they're meth addicts at Hope House or former meth addicts or, or alcoholics. A lot of times what they happen is they will stop doing those things turn, which we'll call repentance, but they will pick up pornography. They will pick up lying. They will pick up being a thief. Why? Because repentance, brothers and sisters in Christ, is is not just turning from a sin. It's turning to Jesus. Repentance is is about that. It's, It's realizing, man, Jesus, if my focus is on Jesus, I can't even see this anymore. It's not white knuckling, stopping this activity. Non Christians can do that. It's seeing Jesus and realizing ultimate worth, ultimate value is in him. I'm getting, he's, he is, to use this term, he's, he's more delicious than the craving of that sin, whatever it is. So repentance is not just turning from sin, it's turning from sin to Jesus. May we turn from our sin this morning and realize that the personal work of Jesus, may we see him as the servant, Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, our Sabbath, our priest, our better David, our better Moses, our Lord and Savior. May we fall in love with Jesus. May we know for him for who he really is and he will work out our Sabbath rest. He will work out what we're to do on this day. He will work out our mercy ministries. He will work out our servant opportunities. May we turn to him. Let's pray.